This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. Now, here in Ontario, more fallout from the report of the Independent Commission into Long-Term Care. The Long-Term Care Minister, Marilee Fullerton, has not apologized and keeps focusing on long-term problems and refusing to acknowledge the finding that her government made things worse. Meantime, the Premier is deflecting. He keeps sending out statements about his demand blaming the virus and the variants on the fact that um, non-essential travel is still happening, calling on Ottawa to close our borders to non-essential travel. And Ottawa, meantime, is taking over oversight on Highway 413. uh, And uh, that is a big sore spot with environmentalist residents uh, who say that it will get rid of green space while the Ford government is trying to fast track that. So a big question, does this all signal the end to that cordial relationship that we saw between the feds and the province. In Ottawa, there's that widening sexual misconduct scandal in the military. And and my question is, you know, in the middle of all this, is anybody more than a few miles, kilometers from the Hill really focusing on that? And of course, as you just heard in Bob's news, NASI, the National Advisory Council on Immunization, is coming under increasing fire for confusing guidance, which contradicts what public health officials have been telling us. And just since yesterday, now they said this uh, over a week ago as well, intimating that the Pfizer and Moderna were preferred vaccines. They said that before. They said it again yesterday. And since then, Bonnie Henry, chief medical officer in BC this morning, Christine Elliott, and just now the prime minister have repeated, take the first shot you are offered, which is not what NASI is saying. Uh, from the beginning of all this, their messaging has been very strange, and I would agree, not helpful. Let us begin There, I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Sousa, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Parliament for Mississauga South. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Let's start with Karen. Uh, What do you make of NASI? I... I, when I read it this morning, I actually did a double take. I, I couldn't believe that they had come out and said what they said because it, it is incredibly unhelpful. There has been so much work done to allay the fears of people that AstraZeneca is nothing but a safe vaccine and that the risk is extremely low and similar with Johnson & Johnson. And so to have this advisory panel come out and actually tell people if they're in low-risk situations that they should wait is absolutely ridiculous. 
Well, yeah, and this this example of her sister, if my sister got this and and she died, I'd never what is what? that? I mean, this these risks are one in two hundred and fifty thousand. Charles yeah, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than to develop a blood clot. Or according uh, to some get, of the statistics. Or have a a, a a collision on the way to vac- the vaccination <laughs> right. site. And you're definitely more likely to get COVID. So if I'm really worried about my sister, I'm encouraging her to get the first shot that she could possibly get because the likelihood of her developing COVID is so much greater. And the likelihood of getting blood clots if you have COVID is really quite large. There's a 16% chance as opposed to one in 250,000. I mean, all through the piece... They have been completely oblivious to the effect of what they have to say is and the timing of it. I, I, I mean, honestly, uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. But my conclusion is I have no confidence in Nancy. No, they should be quiet. <laughs> they should be quiet. <laughs> Charles Souza, what do you think? Yeah, Dr. Uh, Sounds, I pronounce it quack the way she came out and <laughs> did her, um, her interview. It, it was bizarre. And, um, and of course, a total lack of confidence now in what is being done because of some of these commentaries. Now, strangely enough, a lot of people who had reservations about AstraZeneca were coming around to getting the vaccine mm-hmm. and didn't, and recognize that, you know, the, the possibility was, was remote that they would have the clots. But for her to come out and actually express it that way suggests that, well, maybe there is something to this. And maybe we shouldn't be doing the AstraZeneca. Like the, 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 the messaging is so confusing and so negative to the cause at hand. It's really unfortunate. And and John, there is so far uh, there have there's been you know a veritable parade of people saying you know contradicting them saying take the first shot and of course um, many of them are people who publicly got the AstraZeneca shot. It's a schlamazel, uh, <laughs> Levy, to be honest, and I've used that term before on the show, but it truly is. I'm, I'm not sure you're using it right, but we will leave your Yiddish be for now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me just put it more bluntly. Then it is a mess, uh, and uh, and it's it, but it's indicative, I think, of what we've seen throughout this pandemic. And and again, I, I've talked about how there's never been there's no playbook on this. You know, we've had vaccines, we've had issues in the past, and and we've you know SARS being the most recent one where we tried to deal with it. This pandemic is like no others that we've ever seen before, and it's causing the, these new variants and these waves that are coming in. And governments and health officials all along have been trying to sort of deal with it. Because it's global. So you're, you're getting information from Europe and other, other jurisdictions and the U.S. And, and all this. And there's always been this mixed messaging all along. So a lot of the politicians, and I don't, I don't mean just this, our premier, but premiers across Canada and the prime minister have had to deal with all those shifting sands of, of what, you know, what the vaccines are going to be coming and what, what this vaccine means. And is it more efficacious than others and all this kind of stuff? So, and this is just yet another example a recent example from NASI that was, I just don't understand why they would even venture in that, in that regard to sort of even pick one over the other to say this one's better or these two are better than the other ones. Because as we've seen over the last little while, people are, there are people who are just a little bit gun shy with respect to vaccines. This is going to send them over the edge. 
and and for those that that had some some trepidations or some reservations about uh, AstraZeneca, uh, well, this is just another proof to say, well, I'm not going to get that, because we've seen and we've heard anecdotally people saying, I'm going to wait for my appointment with Pfizer or with Moderna versus mine with uh, with AstraZeneca or with J&J. So hearing it from NASI uh, is, is just, is just you know, unheard of. And I think, and I've given credit to the Prime Minister on various occasions, and having him go and do an AstraZeneca shot when he did last week or the week before, I thought was really good and it was really telling them. The, the Premier did as well, and, and the Minister of Finance, Elliot, did as well. They all sort of, to try to pump up the fact that, hey, look, we're taking AstraZeneca. It's okay for us. It should be okay for you. And, and that still applies. And I see that the Prime Minister came out and basically said, look, AstraZeneca is safe and you should take whatever vaccine is available to you. Uh, and, and, and people should be doing that. They should be taking whatever appointment they get uh, because vaccines are obviously being are being distributed, and Ontario is now at 40, 45 percent, I guess, vaccinated. Uh, in Canada, is almost approaching 30 percent, which is really good news, and that's why we're seeing the numbers dip a bit over the last couple of days. And so here's what I find scary. So one thing that I have heard several different versions of, we are waiting to hear if it's okay to mix vaccines, to mm-hmm. interchange them, to get your second dose with something different. Now, uh, what I'm hearing different versions of is is when the actual data from the trials in Britain will become available. And one thing I heard that I still have to check is that it may not be for a while, and therefore it will be up to NASI to pronounce on this. And between you guys and me, I, I don't think I trust NASI <laughs> to make the right call on this if, in fact, it, we're not waiting for the trial data. Karen? Well, uh, yeah. Go ahead, John. No, no, go ahead, Karen. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I agree with you entirely. I think the best public service that could be done is to have them be quiet for a long, long time. Because <laughs> when we're being asked to trust the experts, and they present themselves as experts contradicting other experts, it becomes extremely detrimental to the, to the public and, and the, the level of trust the public has. And again, all the work, to John's point and Charles's point, all the work has been done by so many leaders to say, these are safe, take the vaccine that's offered to you, to have it then be contradicted. Then, to your point, Libby, sends a question of, okay, who can I trust on this one? And, you know, if I, what, what am I going to do about my second dose? And so that is a huge question. And, and, and again, it, unless they can be helpful and, 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 and give information that's not going to seed more sows of confusion, they should just be quiet. They should just be quiet. Okay. And, and people, you know, look to the United Kingdom where millions mm-hmm. and millions of people right. received the AstraZeneca shot. We have, have not seen a, a vast epidemic of, of blood clots. No. Uh, so uh, let's move along here. So the the Independent Commission into Long-Term Care reported and the Long-Term Care Minister, Marilee Fullerton, un- under fire but seemingly impervious. Charles, how do you rate her performance? You know, I, I was always, and guys like John and Karen can appreciate this, when you get before the media and you're doing a press conference, you're there to serve the people. You're there to communicate the efforts and the issues. You're there to acknowledge the shortcomings and to find ways to provide solutions. The blame game and the deflection to the previous governments, I get it. But then what are you going to do next? And 
how whole, and, and you got to be held accountable. So when you walk out of a press conference like that, you're, you feel like you're hiding. And when you're out there and you're only defending the interests of the governing party for what they've done to do something for that period of time, doesn't answer the pervasive issue that's been existing for a long time. I'm building a long-term care home. I'm trying to do something to provide affordable housing in the community. And I'm working very closely with the ministry and now with third-party operators who have reviewed the studies and gone through some of the challenges to find the best way to move it forward in a way that protects quality of care for our seniors. But for her to walk away from responding and to being, that's, it, it just seems very defensive. Seems like they're trying to hide and 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 it seems like they're they sound like they don't have their situation under control because the premier has been saying that he's going to put a ring around the issue. He's going to fight the cause. But what's happened he is failed in that resources being given uh, to long term care, and that's not today. That's been a long a long time coming. He's... I mean, I, I mean, as minister of finance, I, I was under pressure all the time to try to find more uh, effective ways to support. Uh, uh, the staff and, and, and the units. John, um, you're conservative. Uh, rate Marilee Fullerton at the moment. Well, I think she, um, you know, she's always had a bit of a challenging uh, uh, time in, in this portfolio. And, and, you know, as somebody who is in the healthcare, her, the minister being in the healthcare uh, sector and, and understanding this. And I think she's in the past have, has, has raised some red flags with respect to long-term care. Uh, long before and including during the pandemic, I think it, it's it's been a challenging portfolio for her, no, no doubt. And I and I do and I do hear what what Charles says with respect to you know blaming other governments. I, and you know I, I know that those governments you know that that liberal governments used to blame Mike Harris, you know who was who was a premier twenty years ago for for stuff. And and that happens all the time. I think with respect to long term care though, Libby, it has been a systemic problem, and it's been that that way for decades. It's been an over multiple okay. We know that over John, multiple years. But, John, we but know no, that. But I'm is- just saying that. I'm just saying that because it, it, it got to a point where it finally got sort of recognized and got to the forefront because of the pandemic. And now the government and governments are spending a lot of time, a lot of money talking about it, including the feds, who have, we've talked about maybe even doing a more of a national strategy towards long-term John, care, where that John, was never I, being discussed before. I, I don't want to interrupt you, but is she, is she handling this appropriately for a minister or does it well, leave look, you shaking I, I, your head? No, it's a it's a tough, it's a tough file for her, and, and obviously, and it's a tough one to to deal with. I think that she's trying to do her the best that she can. I, I think that you know, obviously, trying to you, 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 she took a couple of questions. She should have, probably should have taken a few more questions. I think the premier, to his credit, has always taken every question, good or bad days, uh, and I think she should have been, especially because this was a hot topic. It was on the heels of, of the report being being published. I think she addressed the issues that she said. Look, we're, we're trying to fix it. We're trying to move forward on it, which I think is smart. Could she have taken more questions? Yes. Should she have stayed in there and, and taken the heat a bit longer? Probably. So I think from that perspective, she could have done a little bit better. But she, it is a tough file, Libby, and, and I think she's done the, the, the best she can. And, and well, I would imagine that you know if there's a, if there's a, other discussions regarding who could who could take that on in the next go round, I'm sure there'll be those discussions happening. Uh, Karen, is it just a matter that she didn't stay in that news conference long enough? No, I, I think it's fair to say that she's not strongest communicator of the Ford government. Uh, because, you know, even Minister Lecce, he's, he's controversial for sure, but I, I think everyone believes that he's doing his best. And, and I don't think that um, this minister has that same level of consideration. And, you know, some of the things, again, because the reports come out and that the fact that there was wave one that was 
tragic. But the fact that Wave 2 repeated some of the mistakes of Wave 1 and there was no, there's no accountability. It, it, it feels like there's no accountability. I think that rests solely on the minister. And that to, to the, you know, to the points that were, you know, she appeared defensive, left, you know, this is a file where you can't be defensive. You need to be out there managing the message, managing the narrative. If there is a reason that things happened, we don't know why they happened. And it seems to me that studies are uncovering this and it shouldn't be left to studies. The government should own this, be accountable for this, communicating what's going to change, be ahead of this issue. Because although this pandemic is played with no playbook, these are not issues that are new anymore. And, and nobody believes that long-term care is going to be solved in a day. But nobody can understand why the clear lessons from wave one were not implemented in, in phase two. Charles, you're involved in long-term care, so we take that into account. But one of the very interesting ideas in this commission report was a suggestion of a new kind of model where the building of the homes would be handled by the private sector and the paying back of that would allow those investors to make a profit, but the managing of it would not be by for-profit companies. What do you think of that? Well, I'm actually, well, I'm involved with a group of individuals who are all volunteers, and we are building a not-for-profit, we have established a not-for-profit organization to construct both the affordable housing, and, which would be assisted living, and the long-term care component. So it's about 300 and some odd beds right in the, in the core of downtown Toronto, Lansdowne and Bloor. We're working closely with a third-party operator who is experienced in the delivery of the services, and we can rely on them to provide us up-to-date um, recommendations as we build it. We haven't built this yet, right? This is still going to be taken a couple of years before it's established. But I think it's probably appropriate to provide incentives of a not-for-profit group uh, who would then hire the appropriate uh, for-profit organizations. You know, whoever the builders are, whoever the operators are, who's a supplier of the linen, all that stuff is are all private companies. But to have a not-for-profit organization surrounding it may be appropriate because you're not dealing with shareholders. You're not dealing with the demands of trying to establish those appropriate returns. You can lobby more effectively with government in, in terms of getting sufficient resources or increased uh, rates on a per diem for, for food and other services for PSWs. I, I, and you don't have that obligation to, have a, to meet a quarter-to-quarter um, AG, you know, uh, ratios. Oh, so when when you say uh, hiring for profit, I mean it's like a a, a set uh, number, and it's not a matter that this is operated by a company that has to pay out its shareholders. Exactly, and then you, everything is done through RFPs. Everything's transparent. You get uh, competing bids, and most of the services provided in healthcare are for profit organizations in some respects, but the actual management of the home. Um, you know, I, I think if we start to make that a profit-oriented thing, you're going to you're going to cut various services. You're going to shortchange it. You're, you're going to limit that quality of care that's so essential, ensuring that these individuals aren't held in a prison, aren't being mocked up, aren't aren't able to access um, better quality. And that's what has happened during the pandemic. And I agree with the other two uh, members of the uh, of our team here who reference the fact that this is unknown territory. Yeah, we know that they could have done what the lessons learned in Wave 1 should have been had in Wave 2 and now Wave 3. I'm very distressed that that didn't take place. And it's not because it was a for-profit or not-for-profit organization. It was because they didn't act effectively on maintaining the regulatory aspects around this. 
But well, I'm in agreement. I think a not-for-profit okay. group is probably appropriate in managing a long-term care home. Karen? Yeah. Well, 25 years ago, when the, when the province financed the construction of long-term care beds, they provided a construction subsidy that was based on an occupied bed. And, and that, so that created um, some, some, some perverse incentives, whereby the home that was building the facility received a subsidy for 25 years as long as beds were full. As soon as they weren't full, they didn't get the subsidy, and then that impacted their overall um, business model. And so as the government looks forward to think, okay, how are we going to reinvest in this sector? I think it is wise to pull the capital from the operating to say, we're going to pay you this much to build your facility, but it's not linked to the operation. So you don't feel the need to, you know, bring people in to stay at, it was, you know, 93% occupancy in order to actually meet your business objectives. And so, because then you're looking at people like widgets and they're not widgets, they're people and they need care. And it should be delinked from the building of the infrastructure. Karen's right on, and that's exactly how we're proceeding with our our our, our, our facility, our complex. Okay, uh, let us uh, turn for a moment to Ottawa and the widening military scandal. Uh, I mean, again, we have examples of blaming the previous government. I heard the Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, uh, when it comes to General Jonathan Vance, accused of sexual misconduct, saying, hey, uh, Stephen Harper knew when he was first appointed. So, uh, you know, I have to say, I haven't been paying that much attention to this. To me, it has ever been thus. And uh, is is this going to go anywhere? Uh, what do you think, John? Well, uh, you know, and it, it's hard to focus on anything that's not COVID-related or, or, or related to the pandemic, as we talked about. And long-term care facilities are far, far more important than anything else. But, you know, you've got this issue uh, with the federal government. And I think the, for the, the, the opposition, the Conservatives specifically, are, are really you know, doing their job to, to get this and keep this in the press. Uh, and I think it's for a reason. And I think it's to, to try to drive the narrative that this federal government uh, has has always obfuscated and it's always been it's been defensive and it's shut down committees, not only with this, but with we and other programs. So it speaks to a general narrative, I think, Libby, that that they're trying to portray this government. And, and the reason why they're doing it is because, of course, in a minority situation, an election is looming. Uh, and this is yet another example, because they've also been hammering this government with respect to the mixed messaging on the vaccines and all that kind of stuff. But this is an issue because, you know, when you have the liberal government trying to, not that trying to, but actively uh, delaying and filibustering committees so that you can't, dis- you can't, you know, you can't call witnesses. You've got Someone from the PMO who basically said, yeah, the chief of staff did know this and was aware that it was a serious personal allegation that was happening. And the prime minister saying, well, nobody knew. That kind of finger pointing, which is exactly what happened with we, which caused the, the, the government some level of consternation, is happening again now. And to have this kind of stuff you know, happen, I think it's right for the opposition to, to, to sort of want to portray it or at least want to bring it up in, in, in as an issue, because I think it speaks to a general pattern that this government is having, which I think is going to be negative to, to what Canadians see about this government, because there is a, a bit of a hiding and, and cancelling and filibustering and, uh, and, and not having you know, the transparency and accountability that, that the Prime Minister is so proudly saying that this government's all about. Uh, Charles, are they going to wear any of this, or is it just uh, something that's, you know, people aren't focusing well, I, on? I think the public is going to, you know, consider the circumstances. We have an issue that's been pervasive. There's a lot of harassment, intimidation, and the culture within the military. Um, it, it has to be changed. I mean, corporate Canada uh, has, and, and, and the political side, 
have taken a, a greater steps to to uh, deal with these matters. Um, but does it, does you know is the chief of staff, is the prime minister, or is the minister of defense acting in good faith? Are they really concerned about changing the culture? I mean, and trying to support those victims and providing. Uh, accountability where they can get, you know, fair trials and so forth. I think they are. Uh, these are allegations, and these are matters that are that are really difficult to manage in a public setting. And um, I think the Bloc agreed with the Libs to stop doing the studies, and that'll prolong the issues, which may actually be to the advantage of the military and those in there. We want to be able to deal with the matter more quickly. Um, it's a very unfortunate situation, obviously, and these are things that have been hacking, they've been ongoing for too long. And uh, there's a lack of trust. And the, the ombudsman, I think, said it very well, says stop politicizing the issues. Let's, do get, let's find ways to solve the real issue. And uh, there should be an independent body, which I guess the Canadian Forces National Investigation Services is supposed to be. But uh, we, have to, we have to do a way and find a, a better, safer way uh, for those victims to come forward and to change the culture within the military uh, you know, the guys that are at the head are people that have been around for generations. I mean, um, this thing, this, and I, I think people are more sensitive to it just as they are in corporate Canada. Uh, Karen, uh, before we wrap up, something you would be more familiar with uh, as a former municipal politician. So Ottawa is stepping in with an environmental assessment of this Highway 413. And by the way, people were going to be picking up on that a little later in the show is that a good thing no i don't think it's a good thing I, I, because again it is just um i mean we see this encroachment so the federal government is now getting involved with the provincial highway the provincial government is getting involved with municipal land planning and you know at a time when um government is you know tasked with the overriding job of getting the pandemic under control i think it's really important that government stick in their lane and so it would appear as this, from naively, it would appear to me as if this is gearing up for an election, that they're going to try to make this highway an election issue. And it, it, that's the kind of thing that I just don't think is, is wise to be doing right now. Uh, John, do you have a view? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and Karen and, and Charles, both as uh, successful elected officials, would know that when other jurisdictions start encroaching upon your, your own jurisdiction, uh, it, it gets frustrating. And I think here's an example. And I think that Karen's bang on with respect to an election issue. You know, the Liberals have a lot of 905 uh, MPs uh, who I'm sure are, 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 you know, whispering in the prime minister's ear to do something about this. You know, polls show that some people are quite, quite supportive of this new highway. Um, but, but sort of allowing this to happen when, when the process is already in place, uh, I think is a bit problematic and I think could be, a, could be a bit of a challenge. And yet another example of how the feds and the provinces will be going, will be butting heads over something that is, that is within, the, uh, within the provincial jurisdiction. Uh, Charles, uh, I mean, a lot of residents, environmental groups are against this highway. Uh, it's going to get rid of farmland. It's going to go over green space. Uh, how do you see it? Well, I mean, when Crombie quit and the entire team and the boards walked away, it was a very huge signal that the environment was not taking a priority over their decisions, or at least they wanted to minimize the impact of the environmental protection measures. And when you appoint a former minister who voted against the Green Belt and took some of those actions, contrary to what many, I think, are now seeing as a good thing 
uh, for the GTA and for our environment, um, they question the sincerity of uh, the process. Part of it, though, and when the feds start to encroach on these matters, and you know, having been a provincial member, I also didn't appreciate when the feds would take over certain things, nor did they appreciate when I would uh, push them on certain matters, just like the gas tax. I mean, there are some politicization. I mean, Trudeau recognizes that this is a big issue for many, certainly though that support base that are there for him. Both governments are coming up to election time, and election cycle decisions infuriate me. Okay, well, there you go. Unless you're uh, actually th- in them, right, Charles? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, well, we're we're out of time. Uh, that was a very uh, spicy and wide-ranging conversation. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thank you. All the best, guys. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we are talking to Jerry Dias, who is the president of Unifor, about what he calls an insulting cap up from one of the most profitable companies around Loblaw and how they are paying their frontline grocery workers. We'll have that when we return. Let me give you the numbers out again. I bet a lot of people have something to say about this. Excuse me, 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Throughout the pandemic, we've hailed grocery workers as heroes, but does that appreciation extend to their pay packets? Loblaw, the Loblaw companies, the country's largest and very profitable grocery chain, has long since canceled the $2 an hour pandemic pay hike that they brought in during the first wave. Now, in response to the pressure to reinstate it, the company put in a worker appreciation bonus. And Unifor is calling it chump change. It ranges from as little as 25 bucks to $175. The union has also accused Loblaw of unmitigated greed. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's go to Jerry Dias, National President of Unifor. Hi, Jerry. Hello? Hello? Okay, there's uh, some kind of problem here. Hello, are you there? I can hear you. Today. Hello? Is this Jerry Dias? Yes, it is. How are you today? <laughs> fine. I'm, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm just still completely disgusted with Loblaws. I can't believe them. Okay. Um, we're having a little trouble. Are you on a speakerphone or anything like that? No, I'm not. I've got the... Is this any better? Uh, yeah, that's better. Okay, good. Good. We've got you now, Jerry. So when did you find out about this bonus, which was their response to reinstating pandemic pay? Uh, we we found out about it just a couple of days ago. They called us to give us notice, thinking somehow that we would be celebrating their incredible uh, gift. See, Sarah Davis, the CEO of Loblaws, last Friday was her last day. She was retiring with her $6.4 million wages and her $1.35 million bonus. So she thought as a parting gift, she should share 
with her employees. And so that's what she did. They awarded $175 uh, to those employees who are full-time and to uh, $25 to those that are part-time. And uh, just how profitable is Loblaw? Uh, they've made over a billion dollars in profits last year uh, during the pandemic. They are much more profitable than any time in their history pre-pandemic. So they're printing money right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the, for grocery stores that are operating, they are doing well, generally. They are at the top of the food chain, for lack of a better choice of words. So they are doing incredibly well. Their their executives are doing very well. But if you can imagine, it's also straight collusion with them, Metros and Sobeys, because they all introduced the $2 an hour pandemic pay in March of last year. Then in June, they said, look, it looked as if the pandemic is under control and took away the $2 an hour. So here we are now in, in May of 2021. They still haven't reinstated the $2. And we know, of course, that with the variants, we're in worse shape today uh, than we have been at any time during the pandemic. So the facts are they should be ashamed of themselves, but they're not because they don't care. Sarah Davis doesn't care. I remember when the Weston family name in Canada was like royalty. Today, they're perceived of everything that's wrong with raw capital. The facts are is that you can criticize them, Libby. The owners can criticize them. They don't care because of that arrogant. Well, yeah, and they they uh, are uh, not politicians. They don't have to be elected. Uh, what has the reaction been so far to you calling them out on this? Look, nothing. They they think that what they did was fair and in the, under the circumstances. But I'm not surprised that that would be the reaction because they really just don't care. It's about greed. It's about filthy greed. It's an unmitigated disaster, what they're doing. But they have no conscience. None. I don't know how they get up in the morning and they look at themselves in the mirror. Obviously, they're gold-plated mirror, but the facts are is that they don't care. Uh, Those are very strong words. What does the average grocery worker earn? Well, you have a 1,000 grocery store workers quitting every month because of the low pay, because of the fear of COVID. So they're rehired at minimum wage. So there's an incredible turnover because people are nervous. People are afraid. I mean, in the beginning, people will think the companies gave the $2 an hour pandemic pay because it was they were doing the right thing. It wasn't about them doing the right thing. They gave the $2 an hour pandemic pay because they figured that their employees would stay home because they'd be better off and safer collecting CERB than going to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that still the case? Um, you've got a, a thousand people quitting every month. And it has a lot to do with the fact, you know, lack of paid sick days. It has to do with lousy pay. It has to do with people just being afraid. But do you think that at a time when the company is printing money, they would say, look, we get it and we appreciate it. But if their appreciation is $175 for full-time, and if you can imagine it's 150 for part-time people that work over 40 hours a week, and it goes down to $25 for people that work 16 hours, like, they have no shame. Wow. Wow. Um, Do you think that... I hate to see what they do if they're mad at their employees. um, Do you think that there's going to be any difference? I mean, 
the province has just cut back on the number of people allowed in a grocery store. Uh, they've, they've cut back from 50% capacity allowed to 25%. Do you think that went into their calculations that since they could have fewer people in the store at a time that they won't be making as much money? No. They, uh, that, would, that would mean that they were thinking about their employees even one iota. The facts are is that they've made more money and are continuing to make more money than they ever have. We're in a pandemic. We're supposed to be pulling together as a nation. Uh, they know that they have frontline workers that are exposed to COVID each and every day. But they don't care about their employees. They don't care about public perception. The bottom line is they care about themselves. When you take $1.35 million bonus, which is more than your wages, and your total compensation is $6.4 million, you don't look at things like normal people. You're living on a pedestal. You're living you know, in a different stratosphere than any, anyone else. The bottom line, Libby, they just don't care. Any uh, further action? Uh, you, again, you've called attention to this in the strongest possible terms. Uh, is, is this going to go any further? Or Look, all we can do is continue to shame them. But like I said, it's impossible to shame people with no conscience. Galen Weston, the Weston family, is worth about $8 billion. Uh, junior, yeah. the Galen Sr. Uh, just passed away yep. very recently. Yep, I know that. So it's junior. But the Weston family is worth over $8 billion. So ultimately, they're not the family that was the family that Canada, you know, had pride in. They should be ashamed of themselves. But like I said, they have no shame. Okay, well, Jerry, thank you for bringing our attention to this. And you never know, maybe something will come of it. Jerry Dias, president of Unifor, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Okay, we are going to take another break, people. Again, the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'll take calls uh, if you have anything to say. I mean, what about that pandemic pay? The third wave seems to be the most dangerous of them all. So uh, why is it? that this pandemic pay has not been reinstated. What do you think about those very small bonuses, worker appreciation bonus? What do you think? We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're also going to be talking about the federal government's intervention with an environmental assessment of this highway, Highway 413. We'll be talking to the former mayor of Toronto, David Crombie, former federal conservative minister as well. When we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we mentioned earlier, the federal government is taking over environmental oversight of the proposed GTA West Highway, delaying the province's efforts to fast-track the project. Now, the 60-kilometer 413 would connect Milton from the 401 to Vaughan ending at Highway 400. It would eliminate 2,000 acres of farmland, cut across 85 waterways, and 
pave nearly 400 acres of protected greenbelt land in the process. Uh, there has been reporting in the Toronto Star that it would also make some developers very rich. So, I'd like to know what you think about this. The other side of it, of course, is that the province says that the population of the Greater Golden Horseshoe will grow to nearly 15 million people by 2051, and that this highway is really necessary. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to go to former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, who has been actively opposing this highway. Hello, David. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. What is your reaction to this move by Ottawa? Well, clearly a, a positive step forward uh, for those of us who've been engaged. That's many people now and many municipalities uh, opposed to the uh, proposition of building the highway. Um, the idea of the, pro- the federal government now taking a role in the environmental assessment, uh, that it's not simply a delay, but it's actually another actor. And what I think it should be doing is uh, having the province, have it dawn on the province that it's time to pull back from building uh, building the highway. Uh, what do you say to their contention that this is necessary, that all of those people who will soon be populating that part of the GTA need it? And, and we already know that a lot of our highways are overcrowded. Well, there was a, a study done in, uh, in 2018. Uh, I might say that the idea of building was about 10 or 12 years old now. It started about 2009. But in 2018, there was an independent study done, and that study looked at all the requirements we thought for the future that would, would be needed. And what they concluded was that the, the highway was not necessary. That in fact, it only saved time, uh, about uh, 30 to 60 seconds a trip. Uh, and so, therefore, the cost of it all, not only in terms of money, but of the cost of it in terms of environmental and agricultural destruction, was just not worth it. And so they recommended against it in 2018. The government of that day um, followed that advice. The current government has not. And what do you think is behind it? I mean, uh, there have been suggestions that uh, it's it's something that will make some developers very wealthy, and uh, these are supporters of the PC government. Uh, do you think that that is what's behind it? Well, it could be. I mean, I... Uh, the world which I deal with in Libby and all of these years I've been involved in public issues of the day, I try to stay away from what might be bad motivations and look at whether or not it's bad policy. This is very bad policy. It's going to make money. I have no doubt that there's been a land assembly because the notion was started some 10 or 12 years ago, and there's been uh, land assembly along the, the proposed route, and there will be people who will um, get involved of course, in the development of that land. Bear in mind that we're not talking about the building of a road, the real co- only. The, the real important thing is to understand that this will bring a lot of land development in that area and therefore further affect the environmental considerations that we have. And so um, let, me, let, me, let me put it clearly. Uh, I don't blame people in the land development industry for trying to turn a profit on, on, on the business they're in. It is the job of the government of the day to make sure it stands up for the public uh, in these things. 
and, and, and the government is not. Why do you think they fast-tracked this? I mean, it looks to me a lot. 2,000 acres of farmland, 85 waterways, 400 acres of protected greenbelt. Yeah, why does he fast-track it? I think because they, there was a pressure to do so from those who are interested in, in developing the land. I have little doubt about that. But that's why I underline um, it's, the land, it's not the land development industry we need to worry about here. It is really about the government and its role. Its role is to defend the public in the, in, in, in the instance of having a, a private concerns have power. And so the province is, is the one at bat. They need to stand up for the public and not simply let it go by. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, thanks for taking my call. And just to add what uh, our former Mayor David Crombie, and we, uh, I wish we had more like him, uh, <laughs> it's just been announced, actually, that the RCMP are conducting an investigation uh, into the Vaughan Working Families, an anti-teacher group, from which uh, one of the developers in the 413, uh, DeGaspris, has uh, deep connections to uh, the Ford government, and in particular, uh, Ford and uh, Lecce himself. So the corruption is is there. It's plain to see. And I'm, for one, I'm very thankful, well, living I've... in Brampton, actually, that the feds are going to step in and, and put some rigor to this uh, environmental assessment. Yeah, Dennis, I, I don't think corruption has been proven. That's quite the allegation. Uh, so uh, I'm going to say, let's, uh, you know, let's that, I'll, stick. I'll say let's, that's my opinion. Uh, well, yeah. Okay, let's stick to the facts. Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. Uh, Mayor Crombie, you and I met on the subway a couple of years ago, commenting that we were both on the subway the first day it opened. But that's, that's not right. The, that's not the reason I'm talking to you today. I have, old, personal, yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. have personal experience in dealing with these issues of environmental uh, oversight. And what has happened under the current regime is they're removing the ability for others to have oversight, especially environmental groups. As a result of that, and I was a councillor up in Georgian Bay Township, one of our people went and filed a lawsuit because what happened was we were cut out, and I was on council, and we didn't even know that the, that the, the, the workers, the, the employees, had taken away any right for environmental posting, the posting of the, of the concerns. So that lawsuit was heard by a panel of three judges two weeks ago, and we're hoping for a positive response on that. But I'm also aware of other issues. Williston Lake, I have a friend down there where they've got environmental issues. The problem is this is, I suspect, the source of the money coming into the Conservative Party, and they want to fast-track things. They do not want the environmental studies to take place. It's as simple as that. Okay, Pat, thanks for your call. Um, David, what what do you make of also that uh, the government has been using these municipal orders as opposed to going through a longer process? Earlier, I, I don't want to get into the weeds on jurisdictions, but we had a number of former politicians, you know, really decrying what happens when one level of government steps on the toes of a more junior level. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't I don't think it's a mystery to people that the current government has decided that it needs to 
um, wind back the clock on environmental stewardship. It, it, it's done that in a couple of ways. One, it has undermined, and currently still going on, they've, they've been trying to undermine the, the, the power and responsibility of stewardship of the conservation authorities, which have been with us for 75 years as guardians of, of our natural heritage. Secondly, they've used what you just called orders. They're called municipal or ministerial zoning orders. And in the past, they've been used maybe one or two, uh, two uh, twice a year uh, in order to get, get done what needed to, everyone agreed to get done. This current administration has totally abused and made egregious ministerial uh, zoning orders so that they've got about 40 of them in one year. Um, and so through that, so wherever you go, you'll find uh, that there's been legislation and usually not, not being honest about it. It's not above board legislation. It's found in other bills brought to the legislature. They're restricting the power and responsibility of, of environmental organizations. And that's for sure. 413, Highway 413, is simply one example of that. Now, uh, this uh, is said to delay this, not necessarily stop it. How long do you think that this federal environmental assessment will take? Well, I, I think, as I, I'm not sure I'm right on this, but I, I think that they were assuming that they would uh, begin as soon as they could. First of all, it's triggered by the province now having to make uh, a, a, uh, an application to the federal government uh, for any environmental um, framework that the federal government puts up. And then they would continue uh, doing some work. Um, ordinarily, the, the two governments would try and work together on it, but it's hard to tell what the politics of this might be. So at any rate, I, to answer your question best I can, it'll be a number of months, that's for sure, probably into the beginning, uh, certainly in the fall, and into the beginning of the new year. I thought that these environmental assessments can drag on for years. Well, they can, uh, and, but, uh, but, uh, but it depends on, on what the parties do in it. Uh, and it, and it depends on how, how the application uh, uh, is, is framed and how the, the federal government will respond to that. So it does take time, but um, and what the worry can be that they will use ministerial zoning orders, and that would create an awesome kind of legal uh, problem. So when you ask how long, now, if they're all kind of working together best they could, then at least they would be able to identify what needs to be done. Uh, and and it hopefully, uh, that would, uh, I think we should hope, that, that the province sees all of this and simply withdraws their application, withdraws their notion to proceed with 413. It, if they were doing, you know, if they were doing a, 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 uh, an audit, a, a value-for-money audit on, on 413, um, uh, they would, they, we would be being asked to buy, the provincial government asking us to buy a, 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 a product of dubious value to us. Uh, it'd be an enormous ecological cost. And, and it costs us six to eight, some even saying $10 billion. As we come out of the pandemic, we are going to need money for such things as affordable housing and long-term care facilities and all of those things. And the idea that somehow we're going to put it on uh, a highway of dubious value for that amount of money is absolute madness. David Crombie, what would you like to leave us with? Well, just about that. I think uh, it, this should be a wake-up call for the province of Ontario. They've got enough on their plate on how to go about taking us out of the, the, the post and into the post-pandemic world without having to build a, a highway that has no value. 
Okay. Thank you so much for that. David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, former tiny perfect mayor. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thanks, Liv. You take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.